The reason people aren't financially free is they don't know what to do and they don't know where to start. I want you to join Joey and I at the Virtual Inner Circle Live April the 4th through the 6th as we share with you the exact answers to those questions. We only do this event one time per year. I don't want you to miss out. Go to westwatwallstreet.com forward slash live and enter promo code podcast. When you're at this event, you're going to get your investor DNA. You're going to get access to up to six different passive income strategies. So you know, leaving this event, exactly what to do, taking our decades of knowledge so that you can start becoming financially free. Go to wealthwhitewallstreet.com forward slash live and enter the promo code podcast. Bro, welcome back into the studio. We've we've been missing you, Stallion. I, I got to hear some of the stories from your 22-day RV trip. You, you willing to share some of that with us? Man, I, I don't know if you're ready for this. <laughs> okay, but you gotta you gotta give us pictures too. I wanted to see some of those in the community, but just yes. give us some of the just some of the top moments. All right, all right. Let me let me break it down for you. We'll we'll probably have many, many episodes on this because there's so many things to take away. But the very first day, you don't expect to drive into the first campsite and your hose isn't long enough. <laughs> That's what she said. No, okay, no comment, no comment. Uh, we got through that the second day, you don't expect to be in a brand new RV and be on calls with roadside assistance. I'm just going to leave it at that. By the way, those people are worthless. If you're listening to this and you work for roadside assistance, I'm sorry. Maybe you're the, the, uh, exception, but these people were worthless. The, The third thing I'll point out is when you're in Yosemite, national park and you drive in and you've done this eight or 10 times you hook up the water the water is supposed to go into the rv right not be not be pouring underneath the rv like this this is not a good thing so uh, okay i'll ask later how you fix that (laughs) okay the water is supposed to go in just remember that in fact um okay so the other part is there's a science to living in an RV. Like you are constantly under pressure to make sure you don't exceed the amperage that the RV can, can handle. I mean, you you saw Apollo 13. Oh yeah. Okay. You you remember Gary Sinise's character? I think his name was Ken. Anyways, he's constant. He's in there like this pressure cooker trying to devise this tool. So it doesn't exceed the amps. Oh, and it would fail the mission. Right. That is exactly what I was doing on a day-to-day basis in the RV. I'm shutting off the air conditioner just to run the griddle so that we can cook food so that people can live, Russ, survive. Some, somebody's listening to you right now that knows exactly the pain that you've been doing. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Now, I will also say this. If I never have to see another dump station Ooh. again, it will be too soon. <laughs> when you when you tack on five kids, my wife and I rolling down the highway for six to eight hours a day. Mm. I mean, that thing was begging to be dumped immediately when we pulled into camp. Tell me, though, that you didn't have a day that you wanted to go put that in a, a storm uh, drain. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start smoking cigars with a with a uh, robe on for sure. In fact, I will say this. 
the RV is now on the rental market and yes. we, we aptly named it cousin Eddie. Oh, beautifully. So if you're looking it. to rent an RV, look for cousin Eddie, uh, and, and we'll, we'll make sure to connect you there. Uh, I'll, I'll add a couple other quick things. One, my wife over the time has perfected being the flight attendant of an RV. Imagine being in the back of a U-Haul. Essentially, that's what this is with a microwave cooking hot dogs while I'm going 75, 80 miles an hour down the highway. <laughs> and she is literally with finesse cooking hot dogs and handing them over to our five kids ravenously eating before oh we can goodness. pull into the campsite. The, I, the only this thing is, that made this better, if the kids would have had their own like service light that, that they could have pushed the button <laughs> and, and requested service. They were asking for pillows. I can tell you that much. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. There was way, way, way more going on and I, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but I'll tell you this, the, the moments that made this worth it, were those times when we were all together as a family at the brand new part of a day, we're all sitting around eating some breakfast and being able to spend some time in a devotional together. And there's other times when I'm driving and my, one of my older daughters is coming and sitting next to me up there in the front cab. And we're talking about life and we're talking about what they're learning and um, having in-depth conversations that sometimes just don't happen in the busyness of everyday life. Bro, and I'll, that, tell you, that, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this before you jump in. Financial freedom is all about the difference that this vacation was compared to 10 years ago. And we've talked about it before on the show, but I remember distinctly 10 years ago being on vacations and sitting there constantly being disconnected from my family, being on the phone or on an email or constantly feeling like I have to follow up while they're sitting there waiting for me to be present. And in this case, I was on a, a vacation three times as long as I've probably ever taken. And I didn't, I was not disconnected at all. I was directly there with them, not feeling the urgency to do anything but be with them at that moment. And man, that's just, it's just an amazing blessing. Bro, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine a better, better way to start off this podcast to, to hear that story. That is what financial freedom is all about. If you just listen to Joey's story and didn't get chill bumps, didn't get excited, maybe you don't want to go buy an RV, but you're like, there's something that tells you that you want something similar. You do want that sort of freedom. Go to wealthwallstreet.com forward slash free call. Jump on a 15-minute call with one of our coaches, and let's talk about how do we get you to that first mark. Well, financial freedom is when your passive income is greater than your monthly expenses, but if you have zero passive income, that's a big bite. That's a big thought to try to get if I have 5000 a month or 10000 a month of expenses to get all the way there. Let's create a plan to get you to the first 25%. Because once you hit that point, then we can keep moving up the ladder to 50 to 75% to fully being financially free. Don't miss out on that. Take us up on this 15-minute call. Get one of these coaches to help give you clarity so that you can have an experience similar to Joey's, maybe minus the dump station and the griddle. 
Let's jump into this episode where we cover why can I not put more into my infinite banking system, which is really a great tool to helping us become financially free. Let's get in there and belly up. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are now joining us into the Financial Freedom Roundtable. This week, we're going to be talking about a topic that is really near and dear to my heart because I have personally experienced this issue. And I've probably talked to more people about this conversation than any other over the last 10 years. That's enough about that. Let's talk about who we're going to be hearing from. My name is Russ Morgan. I'm one of your hosts. I'm across the table from the best coaches in the financial coaching industry. Let me bring in the first one, our resident pilot, the Gooch, Mark Haraguchi. How are you today, Mark? Doing good, guys. Doing good. Ready to tackle this one because this one, I have firsthand experience with this one as well. Well, here's the thing, um, Mark. When we talk about the concept of infinite banking, we always are challenged with how much. How much do I put into my system? What is the normal amount to put into my system? And when should I start my second policy? So today, I hope that you'll help us answer that question, will you? Absolutely. All right. Well, before we do that, let's get over to the man with the million-dollar smile, Mr. Incredible, my friend, J.D. Hill. How are you today, J.D.? I am doing fantastic, and I'm just grateful to have the title of friend. Um, that means a lot. Mm. You know, the guy who coined the phrase, um, oh, I just, the song just, um, just escaped my brain. Bismarcky, his song was something about friend. It was so good. And I forgot it. He recently it was, passed. He did. You are my RIP. friend. Huh? Thank you. I, I said RIP. <laughs> RIP Bismarcky. All right. That's it. Let, let, let's, let's get into this. Why? Can I not put more money into my infinite banking system, JD? Well, uh, because you started too small uh, is, is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, is is you you started too small, um, which is something I'm guilty of. Okay, Mark. What a great problem to have. You guys are so short talking. I need the stallion on here today because I like to have somebody who likes to talk a little bit further. I, I, will, I will say, I think the, the first thought that comes to mind when asked that question, why can I not put more money into my infinite banking system is because your piggy bank is full. And here, here's my thought on that. When I was a little kid, I collected pennies. And you probably have heard me tell the story, but if you haven't, it's worthy to today's discussion. I would collect the pennies and I would put them into little mason jars, right? And I'd have the top on the jar because otherwise the pennies go spilling out. 
And I remember when I graduated college or I don't know, high school, college, at some point, my mom was like, you've got to get rid of these stupid pennies, right? I never rolled them. I never like took them to the bank and cashed them in. I just put them on the top shelf across my uh, closet shelf. And, and I had so many jars. And the reason I had so many jars is because once I got to the point where I put the last penny in and I, I couldn't screw the lid on, I had to go find a new jar to put my pennies in. And I think that that's where the conversation today lies is why can't I put more money into my infinite banking system usually starts with, I, I'm trying to put more money in. I started this policy. I'm putting in $10,000 a year, $10,000 a month, $10,000 a day, whatever your number is. And the, you guys are telling me I got more money and I, I can't put it into this specific policy, right? And so we're really, I think the title of this show should be more about why can't I put more money into my infinite banking policy? Because a lot of times it's the policy that you started was too small and it needs a bigger system. That's my thought. Mark, you though said, what a great problem to have. Tell me more about that. Yeah, you've got more cash than you can stuff into this specific system. So you want it there, there there's two ways to look at this right are we looking at this in the perspective of is this a singular policy question like am i looking at a singular like i've already set it up can i get more money into it i i started at you know two thousand dollars or however much it was 10 grand a year for this policy now i've got more cash now i've got like 15 at the end of the year can i put 15 into it instead of the 10. well what a fantastic problem to have yay you your cash flow has increased. Your, your, your systems are better aligned. You're now in a position where you've got more cash coming in than what you had when we started your original system. So that's why I say, what a great problem to have because you've now got more cash than what you had originally planned on having. Mm. So good for you. I love that. And by the way, thank you, Ernie Brown, for giving me the lyrics to, oh, baby, you. You got what I need, and which is a little bit weird that I considered like bringing the friend conversation up with you, JD. So let's don't let's keep it let's let's keep it not weird. I know that you're really close to Austin. We're gonna have to edit that out. Let's no, let's I'm, don't. I'm hours away from Austin, <laughs> and I'm hours away from a tune. But you said because you started too small, that was your That's response right. to why can I not put more money into my infinite banking system? Tell me more about that. Yeah. Well, it's something that I can personally relate to is I can't put more money in because I didn't think big enough, right? I thought too small. And so I've outgrown my current system and I outgrew it too fast. Um, and, and I think, you know, as, as we, as I personally process through that, you know, human nature, I think is we're, we're, you know, we, I've talked about this a lot is that our experiences is what drives beliefs. Our beliefs ultimately is what drives behavior. And, um, if, if you've never had an experience with, you know, infinite banking or something that's more contrarian, um, I, I think we can get to this place where we understand the concepts, but we're a little concerned about overcommitting, right? To so where if we overcommit, we may not be able to fully fund the policy like we, like we know we can. Uh, and so we end up thinking too small. And, and that was something that, that I myself found myself in is that I, I thought too small instead of thinking bigger and thinking about what more, what's possible. Uh, and so, you know, my first couple policies, like they're, they're, there's nothing else I can do. I mean, they're, they're great policies. I love that I have them, but you know, they're, they're too small. And so now I'm taking out larger and larger policies, uh, and just like a pendulum, which is interesting, 
um, you know, we, we start out on one side of the pendulum and then after we have an experience there, we move all the way over to the other side of the pendulum. And the reality is, is that we need to be somewhere right in the middle. Uh, and so, you know, we can end up taking out a policy that may be too large based on that by, by going all the way to the other side. Uh, and so there's some balance there as well. Um, and so, you know, to Mark's point, it is a, a good thing, um, a good problem to have. On the flip side, it's, it's, it's not a good problem to have because um, you didn't start big enough. And compound interest, as you know, if, if you could have money compounding, you'd want it compounding for as long as possible. Um, and so starting too small can prevent that. This podcast is amazing. Almost too amazing, Russ. There's too many ideas and I don't know where to get started creating passive income. Well, here's the thing, Joey. I think one of the things you need to consider in that statement is what is it costing you to not know? What is it costing you not to take action? I love the statement that says you don't have to be great to start. You just have to start to be great. If you're struggling on where to start, you have to know what type of investor you are. Know your investor DNA. And if you want to learn more about this, you can join us in our Passport Challenge at wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash Passport. Get started today. The biggest obstacle to becoming financially free is not having access to cash, right? And I think mm -hmm. what you're saying there is one of the, the concerns that we have, this internal conversation we might have with ourselves is that we are concerned with giving up access to cash, right? Because that's our safety blanket, right? That's our little lovey, that's our snuggie. And we, when we see that account where we've had that money residing and we go to write a check to put it in into a different account, our experience has always been, okay, now I no longer have access to it, right? And right. when Joey and I, repeat the phrase, the biggest obstacle to standing in your way to being financially free is not having access to cash. It's like, well, okay, well, I keep access to cash. So that I think goes a lot into the thought process as to why when I first start this insurance policy through infinite banking, I don't put as much in there as I possibly could because I'm afraid, right? I see it as an expense. I see it as something where my money will not come back to me a lot like other things that I've put money in, like my 401k or maybe even a piece of real estate, right? Good thing. But initially I don't get access to the money. So I need to have this pot of money that I can touch. I had a conversation. I was in Las Vegas last week, I guess it was last week, week and a half ago. Time flies when you're having fun. And the conversation with the guy went something like this. Hey, I started my, my first policy a year ago. Super excited about it. Like I'm really pumped by the fact that my cash still grows when I have it out at work creating passive income for me. I was like, yep, yep, thank you. I know, that's awesome, isn't it? And it's like, here's the thing. When I first started that policy, I put $60,000 in it and I was like, I'm taking a big old bite here. That's a big old bite for me to put 60 grand into something a year. And then here I sit, six months a year later and i start going well crap i got all this cash coming into me from all these different areas and i just put it into a checking account and the best thing for me to do would be to put it back into the life insurance policy but now you guys are telling me hey i can't put this extra money in there because once i've paid off the loan i've already paid the premium for the year i can't put any more into this policy i just realized i need to have put a lot more money in to start off with so what are some of the limitations other than the mental gymnastics and in in our own personal issues that we're dealing with? 
what are some actual tangible because there are things that are preventing people from putting money into their system outside of themselves which one are you like to jump in on that yeah I'll, I'll fire off the first one so i this is one of those those interesting scenarios where you can almost get into a point where you are penalized for doing the right thing so i had a young gentleman he wanted to get started on a policy he was living well within his means so his monthly income versus his monthly expenses left a huge chunk of change well the life insurance company is going to look at how much money you make in a year and they're not going to let you put all of it into a policy because they're going to say well no, hold on a second if you're making let's just take a number a hundred thousand dollars a year and you're wanting to put in seventy thousand dollars towards premium or sixty thousand dollars towards premium they're going to say well well, how are you living during the year? How is this functionally happening? How does this realistically work? So there's limitations on how much against your gross that a life insurance company would allow you to put in. And I'll let JD speak to what some of the restrictions of why they do that, because he's much more eloquent than I was. So, Well, I appreciate the, the flattery, Mark. Thank you. Um, I didn't realize that that was part of a, a pilot's training was flattery. Um, that's, that's good. I, you know, it's, it's interesting when I'm, um, talking with folks, one of the things I talk about because of the nature of how liquid life insurance can be. And oftentimes when we think about life insurance, we don't think about it as being liquid, right? We think about it as, as this, um, long-term type asset, uh, which, which it is, but it's also extremely liquid if it's, if it's done correctly. Uh, well, this isn't this isn't new, right? Infinite banking, the the concept theoretically may be new, but the idea of designing policies this way or having access to cash and policies this is this is not new. So they've been doing this for 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 years and years and years. And um, you know, I I tell people all the time that you know one of the 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 biggest challenges from an insurance company standpoint is they're not just like their their primary goal. What they're underwriting for is the risk of loss. Right? That's why we buy insurance is to underwrite the risk of loss. But they're underwriting the risk of loss in terms of you dying prematurely. Like that's that's the risk that they're underwriting. What they're not underwriting for is tax evasion, money laundering, right? Those types of things that candidly, I don't think people realize, but these types of, of, of instruments are used all the time in that space for people trying to launder money or evade taxes because of the nature of how liquid that these types of contracts are. And so there are limits to what you can put into these policies based on the IRS limits, in addition to based on what the insurance company would allow you to get to, to, to put in. Um, well, I, I want to jump in there real quickly because there's when you're talking about limits, some of these limits and Again, you can go do your own research. I, I'm going to give you the the thirty thousand foot viewpoint of this. And I, I learned this several years back from an attorney, and he was kind of describing some of the things about life insurance. He was like telling me like why he loved life insurance for himself and why he he actually referred so much business uh, to groups just like ours. He's like, you know, in the in the early '80s, most people don't know this, but the top tax bracket. The top tax bracket in the early 80s was 70%. Right? It That's wasn't until Ronald Reagan came in and adjusted that till we dropped down to 50%. 50%. We're living in the day and age where we're like, man, I'm paying 37% or whatever it is. That's a ton. No. In the early 80s, 1980, 1981, people in the highest income bracket were paying 70% to the federal government. That's crazy town. Well, 
there was obviously attorneys trying to find loopholes, trying to find ways around it. That's the reason why if the tax code is 10,000 pages, seven pages represent income, the other 9,993 represent exceptions to the rule. There was attorneys that were adding to those pages, finding you know ways to get around their clients paying 70% of their top income to the, to the government. So what they did is they built these um, different uh, real estate corporations that allowed them to put money in there and ultimately reduce their income by the money that they were putting into these real estate corporations. They were even willing to take a loss on their cash flow from the investment itself because they were net positive by having not had to pay 70% on the money. Well, the IRS was like, okay, we see what you're doing here. We're going to shut that down. So they, they restructured the way all that real estate could be processed. And so there was a, an opening there for all this money that needed to go somewhere. And the tax attorneys at the time said, hey, let's shove it into life insurance. That's right, life insurance. One of the, the places that people from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that was a common thing for people to be putting money into life insurance. Reason why a lot of us who are in their 30s or 40s actually probably had a life insurance, a whole life life insurance policy bought by one of our parents because it was in the late 70s, early 80s, where that was still very common. And if people, you find people that are in their 50s, it is much more common that they they probably have a life insurance policy that their parents bought on them, whether they kept it or not, uh, is neither here nor there. Well, people started taking money out of real estate and dumping it into these life insurance contracts and doing it in such a large fashion that caught the IRS's eye. And they said, wait a second, you guys are not trying to buy life insurance. What you're trying to do is shift cash in an instrument that at the time was growing at 8, 10, 12% interest rates because of the Jimmy Carter um, days of inflation, which unfortunately looks like we're kind of playing some of the same games today. But people were getting money into life insurance which was growing without taxes and could be accessed without taxes. Well, it didn't take very long though for the government to come in and put a, a top on how much money people could put in. So one of the reasons today's topic exists is why can't I put more money in? And what you guys were just referring to is that there's something called a modified endowment contract or a seven pay test. The 7702 part of the IRS code that governs how much money someone can put into a life insurance policy and call it life insurance, right? So one of the things that you were speaking to, JD, was the insurance company says, hey, you have a, a value, a human life value, if you will, that we want to replace, but anything past that, you're, you're kind of playing outside the lines. What you were saying, Mark, quick. is if you, if you put more money into the system, then, um, then what we want you to, you're, you're not really trying to play by the rules here. You're really trying to, to take advantage of a tax loophole. So for- Which, Real quick, Russ, if, if I just, not to cut you off, but will any insurance out there allow you to insure something for more than what it's, what, what it's worth? Um, well, unfortunately, AIG did with derivatives, <laughs> but outside of that scenario, I'm not real certain of others now. Right. So, so that, that, that lends to then, you know, there's, there's limits that the IRS puts in place to stay under the modified endowment contract. And there's limits that the insurance company puts in place because again, they're not trying to underwrite insurance fraud to where you're worth more dead than you are alive. 
right? So, so to the point that you're talking about in terms of human life value, right? How, how would you communicate? Like, what does that mean? What is human life value? Mark? Well, I mean, if it's me, it's infinite. I mean, you, you really can't quantify that one, but no. So depending on your age range, right? So, so what the life insurance company is going to do is they're going to take a look at, all right, how much money are you making right now? So just to make the math easy for me, let's say you make $100,000 right now. Depending on your age bracket and depending on the company, they're going to have a multiplier of that. So let's say the multiplier is 25. So they're going to say, hey, if you're in like your 40s, you know, you probably have about 25 years of useful working left. So if you're making 100 grand, let's times that by 25. That's 2.5 million. So the life insurance company says, all right, we could reasonably expect that if you were to pass away today, you probably could have made about $2.5 million. So we'll, we'll insure you for 2.5 million. So that's your human life value. Now flip it on its head. You take someone who's just out of high school and let's say they're working wherever their very first job and they're making say, you know, 25, 30 grand or something. Well, could you ever conceivably think that they would be able to get insurance for three, four, five, or $6 million? No, it just doesn't make it. It doesn't, the math doesn't make sense. Like JD said, they're not going to insure for more than what the reasonable expectation is. And we could all argue that person could go get some training and, and, you know, level up as life goes on. Well, that's why you add on policies as time marches forward. Well, and here, here are some scenarios where someone might be able to do it where there's not a multiplier, right? Because you were just giving examples of, hey, the insurance company says, well, take age 65 and, and subtract your age. And, and that's a, a good gauge of what the multiplier might be, right? I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a good gauge. If you're 30, maybe we'll give you 30 to 35 times your income, right? If you're 50, we may only give you 15 times your income as a in death benefit terms but we see that differ when we get into non-working spouses right outside of, um like my wife right and um, as a homemaker is is a homeschooler um and technically i should pay her um you know millions of dollars i hope she's listening um but you know but she doesn't receive a w-2 doesn't receive a 1099 specifically for those things but the insurance companies will insure them. How does that work, JD? Relative to the working spouse. Um, so some insurance companies will allow you to get dollar for dollar of the working spouse. Some insurance companies will allow you to get up to half of the working spouse. And, and the reason for that, again, we're, we're talking about the risk of loss, right? So, so um, if, if I have more insurance on my wife who doesn't work than I have on myself, that looks weird to an insurance company. Like, why are you insuring your non-working spouse for more than what you have insurance on yourself? Does she need to be checking her Cheerios in the morning? Do we need to be calling the police? Like, what is going on in your household that you would want more coverage on your non-working spouse than what you have on yourself? Uh, and so, so again, they put parameters and bumpers up to make sure uh, that these things are done above board um, and that there's, there's adequate coverage, reasonable amount of coverage, you know, based on whatever the working spouse has. Go ahead, Russ. Well, no, I, I, you said, I don't want to interrupt you, but I actually do want to interrupt you because I, I just want to get my words in here, but just staying with that thought process of non-working spouse, right? We have, we have kids, right? We still have kids in the house and they're not working and just the same parameters apply to them too. They can get a percentage of what the parents have. They would not allow right. you to have a kid be overinsured or insured more than a parent. 
But here, here kind of goes the reason I, I bring those two points up is that the topic is why can't I get more money into my infinite banking system? Think about how many people that we meet who love what we do, who are like, man, I'm doing this to the fullest. I've got kids. I want to buy insurance policies on the kids. I want to put $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 a year on each one of these kids in cash, not death benefit. What does the insurance company say? They're going to want to know, well, what do you, what is the, what does the parent have? How much insurance do you have on yourself? Yeah. And so let's just say the parent has $10 million of insurance. And I, I know you don't know the numbers, but you can guess if, if we wanted to insure a five-year-old for, and put in $25,000 a year, are we going to be able to make that happen? Uh, with 10 million of coverage? Yeah. We might be able to make that happen. You're not going to make that happen. That is crazy town because a five-year-old, you're going to end up buying like $8 million worth of life insurance or something on 25,000, right? Yeah. That's going to be way more than that they're going to insure for a five-year-old. And so this is an area that we bump up against on a regular basis is that there's times where we're trying to insure maybe a non-working spouse. We're trying to insure a kid and we want to put more into that system on that policy for them but there's a limitation, right? Yeah. And, and we've covered all the different people in other podcasts that we can potentially insure, but those are some areas. Any other areas that we haven't considered of why um, I can't put more money into my system, like an, uh, an opportunity that may we may run into? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll say this. So I just had a conversation with um, uh, an insurance company that that we uh, do a ton of work with, asking them some 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 details and questions about you know, how to work more efficiently with them and more effectively with them, you know, and kind of things that they're forecasting and things that they're seeing and, and all these types of things. And um, one of the, the questions that naturally uh, I brought up was, <laughs> we want to be able to get more money into these policies. Like, how do we do that? So th this is not a question that doesn't get asked often. It gets asked every single day, all the time. And what they had shared with me was, is that they actually get their, their uh, block of business audited all the time. And so they have auditors that are auditing their business to look at what is the the the, uh, the ratio of premium relative to percentage of income that's going into these policies, because they want to make sure that people aren't being oversold. Mm. Because in the event that they are oversold, now people are going to potentially pursue lawsuits against the insurance company for allowing these these salespeople to oversell these policies. And the reality is, is that who has a deeper pocketbook, you or the insurance company, right? It's, it's the insurance company. And so people are always going to go to whoever has the deepest pocketbook. So they're always going to go to the insurance company. And in fact, this carrier had mentioned that they had probably five or six uh, lawsuits recently for people that had tried to oversell policies uh, um, uh, to them. And again, the auditors came in and looked at everything and saw everything was above board. So, so those are some other reasons why insurance companies put these bumpers up is because they want to ensure that people don't get oversold. Man, I'm trying to overbuy. Is that, that's <laughs> a, a, I feel like that's where I am right now. I'm trying to yeah. overbuy and I'm being limited. Well, I, we, I know this is a conversation that could keep going on and on and on, but we have people in the inner circle right now who want to ask us questions specifically about their situation or maybe something um, outside of this topic. If you're not already a member of the inner circle, you really need to be. It's super simple. You can go to wealthwhitewallstreet.com forward slash inner circle and, and jump right in. Or if you're not into the process. So the inner circle is where 
we support you to become financially free. It's where we do these weekly coaching calls. It's where we have the opportunity for you to engage with other people who are on the same journey as you. It's also a place where you can get one-on-one coaching with JD, with Ernie, with Mark, and, and be able to take that practical side. So if you want to start that process, if you're not already into our community, you can go to wealthwhitewallstreet.com forward slash passport, which is the first step of three steps to getting in there. And so we would love to see you engage not only in the community, but ultimately be a part of our inner circle. With that, I'll bid you adieu. And next week, I think we'll be back to a full full group. We got the, the stallion coming back. We got Ernie coming back. You guys going to be here next week? Uh, possibly. If 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 uh, the stallion's coming back, I may check out. <laughs> Mark, you coming back? Planning on it. All right. Perfect. Well, I hope you will come back and listen to us. Have an amazing week. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.